0: Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 47 state bars. Law pay. Given all the time that most of us spend working, consider yourself lucky if you have a job you love. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'm talking about how you can get to that point with Simone Salim. A career coach. She previously did professional development work with Berkeley Law and Hastings Law and is working on a book about her own experiences with being a workaholic, having depression, and finding a path to gratitude. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much Stephanie, it's a delight to be here. So tell me about the book you're working on and what led you to want to write the book and share your story.
1: Wow, that's a big story. I'll try to keep it short. Um, you know, I grew up with parents who are refugees from Laos and growing up, I was always told culturally, uh, in Chinese culture that I was lesser than men and I should never go to school. Um, but I didn't believe that lie. And so I was so excited that I, and grateful that I had the chance to go to Berkeley and then Berkeley law school, and then had the chance to work at a big law firm. And when I got there, I was like, wow, I finally made it. I'm sitting here in my fancy office in the Barcadero Center in San Francisco, overlooking the bay with my name on the door. It's like, wow, making six figures. And this was in the recession, right? And Mm -hmm. at the end of my first year, I was already working on a trial, which everybody thinks is like the greatest thing you could do as a litigator. But I felt deeply, deeply empty and was wondering what's going on? Why do I wake up every day crying and having panic attacks going to work? Something isn't right here. But all around me, everybody was telling me, You're crazy. You know, you should be lucky, you have a job, there's so many people unemployed. Why are you complaining? But something just didn't feel right. And I've been in and out of depression from that point all the way till now. That's probably two thousand eleven when that was happening. And I think what it is is that, you know, I I was searching for happiness in all the wrong ways, the markers of success, going to a top ten law school, making six figures, having a nice house. And those things are nice, by the way, growing up really poor, where there are many days where I grew up hungry, having food is really, really important. And even today, I'll still blow a lot of money on food just because I think it's a trauma that's not going away and I have to work through. So having gone through that myself, I finally was like, you know, this isn't helping, went to therapy, and one of the things that my therapist told me to do was to start writing. At the time, I was also launching my own coaching business. And one of the things that my business coaches were telling me to do was to start posting on social media. And if you know anything about me, I'm a tech dinosaur and very, very private about my life and guarded. But it just so happened to be that the confluence of these two things encouraged me to start writing. And and I initially started with something fun, you know, the Thank You Project or Project of Happiness and Project Gratitude. And now I'm finally feeling like my own and my own writing. And if you look at my writings, I finally started to get to a place where I'm sharing publicly. I don't care if you're my friend or not my friend. I stand for certain values. If you don't like it, that's okay. I respect you. I love you anyway. And so I started hearing hundreds and hundreds of other people's stories, their messages to me about their feeling lost and depressed. But if you look at their Instagram account or their Facebook account or their Twitter feed, you would think they have the most fabulous life. They're traveling to Greece, to Turkey, to Thailand, to Laos. They're hiking mountains. They have perfect pictures of their babies, you know, like the dream. But all of us are sitting in there dealing with some kind of trauma, some kind of fear, some kind of anger, some kind of anxiety. And so that's what got me to start writing because I think writing really can heal. It can give me a voice. And I'm not... I'm done with the days of trying to be a savior and martyr but I've done that many times. And that's actually what got me in and out of a lot of depression. Um, and now I write for me. And if my writing can help somebody and save somebody's life, that's what I write for. And I've gotten so many messages from people saying, "Simone, your honesty is so raw, vulnerable, and candid. And you really show everything about yourself, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the dark side. There's no hiding anymore. And it just feels like such a big, release and relief to just be like, man, it's okay to be me. <laughs> all the good parts and all the effed up parts of me.
0: Do you think that I think what you mentioned about social media is absolutely true? I think attorneys are inclined to want to compare themselves to others. And there's a fair amount of wanting to keep up and appear successful. And social media kind of doubles or triples that. Because that's all what we want to put up, (laughs) right? And does that get in the way, perhaps, of you finding the job that's right? For you, I I think it's also hard if you're a striver and you're the first person in your family, perhaps not even just to get an advanced degree, but to have a college degree and to go from being in one income level to another one with more money. And you don't have like a mom or a dad or an aunt or anybody you can talk to about their experiences because your family is, you have gotten to a place in life where you're in a really different place than your family. Yes,
1: yes, 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 yes to all those things.
0: And it's just hard to find what it is that makes you happy because like you said, if you did all this work to go to a good college and law school, of course you should be at a big firm. Of course you should be on the partnership track. But there's a lot of people that aren't, you know, that's that doesn't make them happy. So I mean what can you do in that situation?
1: Yeah. So there's that question, Stephanie, is so complicated. There's so many layers of things so um, uh, with the caveat that my husband does work for Facebook, uh, he is transitioning. Um, so there's always a discussion in our family about how much to post and then how much of our child to post, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I'm on the other end of like anti-posting it on. And he's on the other end now of like, I used to not post, but now I think the company's great, right? And mm-hmm. I think what I've learned from Facebook and other social media tools is that the tool itself is great. I am so thankful that I've connected with people from high school or college that I've, I no longer had any contact with, but were once really important in my life, right? Like my best friend from high school who is now living, you know, all the way across the country, we can reconnect, right? Or my long lost high school teacher who, uh, you know, encouraged me to go to the National Youth Science Camp. Little poor old me who had no money, but this program was free and Governor Gray Davis picked our school to get one representative to go to this amazing program that really had a long-lasting impact on my life. So those types of things are really great. Or even in my own writing now, I can share my writing and anybody in the world can access it because the internet is everywhere. And what's wrong with it is is how people are using it, right? Like, the comparison, the posting only your picture perfect life, the not being vulnerable enough to share that you're having a hard time, or the the hateful messages that we're seeing now where people are so divided politically and posting really angry messages. I get them all the time, and I I used to be the person who would respond back and say, F you back, (laughs) but that Mm -hmm. doesn't help anything. It just makes it worse. I think the second part of that is Well, there is this idea of, like, what does a good life or a perfect life look like? And I don't think it starts from Facebook or Instagram. I think it starts slowly from our family, right? My family wanted me to have a better life. Hell, they risked their lives crossing the Mekong River in the middle of the night. And if you've been to the Mekong River, it's pretty violent and rough to get to Thailand. They get to Thailand, they get arrested, and then, you know, they have to figure out how to get to the refugee camps. And from the refugee camps, they stayed there for five, six years living in shacks, eating rice that had rocks in them, begging for food because there just wasn't much for them, and then trying to figure out what country would let us in. It starts from there, and then and then through the school, we are conditioned to, you have to get straight A's, don't talk back to the teacher, you know, listen to the bell. That's conditioning, right? To, to not listen to yourself, but to say, there's a system in place to understand this. And then it gets bigger uh, when you get to college, Etc. If you have the chance to get to college, and I, I recognize not everybody's privileged enough to go, I went to a high school where there were uh, race riots, gang lockdowns, um, you know, people being shot dead across the street. I mean, it, it was kind of a crazy time, but growing up in it, it was so normal right. that I didn't realize how crazy it was until I went to college, and I was like, oh my god, I was really poor, and oh my god, like I lived in a really crazy place.
0: Well, and do you think? In terms of that, as you know, just having these what's normal to you, and then you go on and do things, and you're like, oh, well, that wasn't normal, and this is where I am now. Does it take some recognition of that? In terms of finding, as an adult, finding the job that works for you and just the lifestyle that works for you. Because it seems like, I'm guessing that, if you really are going to find a job that is good for you, it's a good fit, you like it, they like you, you have to be pretty comfortable in your own skin and know what works for you. And that's not easy if, you know, you've had a different upbringing perhaps.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I can share, you know, um, I share this when I go to networking events that now I present on it, right? Like how to network in an authentic way instead of this like weird, fake, awkward way, which most of us do. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So when I was in law school, bless my uh, career counselor's uh, heart, they would say things like, just go to the reception because they don't want an empty reception, right? It's embarrassing. Mm-hmm. And and don't worry about getting dressed, just go dress as you are. So I would go Dressed in a free T-shirt from law school of clubs I didn't even belong to because that's how frugal I was, and mm. then like shorts or you know yoga pants and flip flops, and then yeah. here here they are these like big law firm partners of like you know making millions of dollars, and they would I would go in and then yeah. I would just see see people spreading out making way for me, not because I was important, but because nobody wanted to associate with me, including my own classmates and friends, because they're they understood that like going at yourself doesn't mean coming flip flops. But I'm like, but that's what I wear every day. Right. <laughs> so um, so I did learn that like, you know what, you have to look a certain way. And frankly, I loved being a litigator. You know, people hate documents. I love looking at documents. It allows me to understand the case. I'm always the one who's like, here's document, blah, blah, blah. I think this is how we can work with the theory. So when you understand the case and know the documents, that's your unique value proposition that you can give to your clients. What I didn't like about the law firm, it's what we hear every day. It's oppressive. It's, you know, billing every six minutes of your life. It's having no control because the minute that red Beeps on your BlackBerry or now your iPhone, whatever device you use, you're expected to respond within five minutes.
0: How did you decide that that wasn't right for you? What helped you reach that conclusion?
1: Okay, so I woke up every day crying and okay. I was miserable. So what had happened was I worked for a partner who was really, really awful. And he's very charismatic and actually was a big reason why I joined the firm because he was so great. He gave me a lot of stretch assignments. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful he chose me as the only junior associate to be on a, a three-person trial team. And so I got to write briefs, motions, and lemonades, prep witnesses, and go to court with him every day. What I'm not okay with and, and had to take two, almost two years to learn was when he was – stressed out. It was not okay for him to yell at me Mm
0: -hmm. in
1: private in my office or yell at me in front of my clients or yell at me in public because it's humiliating. And what studies show now is that when people yell at you, it's like being punched in your gut and it's the same effect. But we're much more easy to dismiss people yelling at you. And what was hard was he is I don't want to say he's a good guy. I'm not going to give him that easy of a pass. He did give me a lot of good opportunities. He was my sponsor in the firm. He did make sure that I had billable hours in a recession. And by the same token, he was also really abusive. And I've even coined the term "battered junior associate." And it was really hard to reconcile all of that and say, like, well, well, my life depends on this guy, because in reality, at a firm, you only have a few partners that are rainmakers, and so if. If you are going to be in that position, you have to accept that this is going to be your relationship. And I had been through a lot of in my life, excuse my French, but you know, my brother was schizophrenic and he would chase me around with a knife to try to kill me. And when he was in his mania, um, I grew up in a neighborhood where like, if you see somebody pulling out a gun, you better put your head down and drop to the floor. I've done that before where there was a drive-by shooting and I was like, oh my God, I better get to the floor. And that's the only reason why I survived. And this was starting at five. Right. So I think what's hard about the firm was that the abuse wasn't physical. It wasn't a bullet. It wasn't Mm, a knife. It mm -hmm. was words. And it took me a long time to figure out like why I started having massive migraines. I started having insomnia. I started having panic attacks. I started vomiting everywhere. That's not normal. That's not normal. And here's the other thing. It's not like he started out that way. He was amazing to work with. But it, in the height of the trial was when he was stressed. And obviously, that's when it brings out the best and the worst of people. And true character comes out when you're under that kind of duress. And admittedly, I wasn't the best person either. And the day I had to quit was the day a security guard decided not to let my then uh, boyfriend, now husband, up the elevators, even though everybody, you know, if they call your office, you can say, like, please let my guest up. I hadn't eaten since 11 a.m. I'd been working 7 a.m. to 4 a.m. pretty much for like three months at this point. I was just about to lose it. And this guy just really made my life hard. He just went on and on about how I had to go down there and just, you know, and then I went down there and then he wouldn't let me back up the elevators. And then he basically like said, fine, you can go in the elevators, but he wouldn't let me up to my floor. And so I just had it. I hadn't eaten dinner. And, you know, when people are hangry, you're at your worst. So I just went off at him. And I realized that I became the abuser, that I was just as awful and nasty to him as those people who were when I was really young and poor and helpless. And he was this really tall guy and he looked like he was going to punch me. And I was like, punch me. I dare you to punch me. You know, I mean, he got to that place where he was in my face and I just went off. I was just like, no more. I'm not taking more abuse. But the reality was I wasn't mad at him. I was mad at myself for letting myself get to a place where I thought I was safe and I had done so much to get here. I had earned my place in this country. I worked four jobs to put myself through college. I worked throughout law school. Yet here I am willingly making the choice to work for a man who thinks it's okay to yell at me regardless because he's a partner in a law firm that makes millions of dollars and I'm just a lowly associate. And so I had to come to that reckoning.
0: Right. I'm curious. So did you reach a conclusion at that firm that it's like, well, this is how probably how it's going to be at a big firm? Or did you think that it might work for you at another firm? Because I could see where, you know, it would be an easier choice, perhaps to say, well, I'll just go to another firm and it will be better. But I think sometimes people find it's still not the right fit. So what happened with you on that?
1: I thought about that. you you asked such great questions, Stephanie. I actually wrote a piece about it, and I'm going to have to support it to you that I publicly posted on my Facebook. And you know I you know so i I decided to talk to the firm about the situation. And I was naive. I thought that, you know, and everybody was like, thank you for letting us know. But everybody knew how he was. And I was even forewarned about him before I started working with him. I are like, you know, he's a great guy, but sometimes he has these moments and you just have to be okay with it. Mm. And so I think the message is you need to just keep yourself small, know your role, and just Just accept things as they are. And if you don't understand that, you're not going to have a very easy time here. And so what happened was I went from being the busiest associate, billing over 200 hours a month to almost 300 hours to basically zero billable hours. And being in that space where I basically was being told in not not so many words, right, that like, you're not going to have a place here if you don't know your place. And when things started to turn around where I was assigned to another case where I hit it out of the ballpark. We want motion for some adjudication. We want attorney's fees and costs. The other this new partner that I worked for threw a party for us, you know, it was just like, my God, he just kept like presenting me at meetings, et cetera. It, it was just making it rain for me, right? I went from the highest billing associate to durable hours for three months to now again the highest billing associate. And the only thing that had changed was was who I was working for it wasn't me. i was doing the exact same work. In fact, I was actually thinking I did shoddier work because I was like, so annoyed and mad that I was like, forget this. I'm going to be a rebel and I'm going to sleep at 2 a.m. That sounds crazy now, by the way. Mm-hmm. But when you were sleeping at 4 a.m. and now you're sleeping at 2 a.m., that sounds yeah. really good, right? Yeah. Um, so I was at a place where I was like, okay, well, maybe I can make it work. But then the other partner came by and was like, hey, I might have something for you to work on. And that was the point where I was like, no effing way." No effing way am I gonna work for you again. I I need this money, I have student loans, but I'm not doing that again. Like I almost died, like literally. Like I wasn't sleeping, I wasn't eating, I was vomiting, I was miserable, I was depressed, I was suicidal. I'm not doing that again. Yeah. And and by luck, I also happened to go to Berkeley to do a presentation on what I wish I had known about on campus interviews and really talk candidly to students about you know, depression, anxiety, being first-generation professional, growing up poor, why it's important to buy a real suit, you know, those things that I didn't know any better to do, right? And I was still fortunate enough to get a job, you know, after going through a lot of trials and errors. And at the time that I was interviewing, I was lucky. Interviews went over for a month. So over the first, like, half of the month, I was rejected from, like, 20 firms. And I was like, I got to get my shit together and figure this out because I need a job when I graduate, mm-hmm. right? But the way on-campus interviews are structured now is it's all done in a week. So you don't have the learning curve that I would have had. So that was the impetus for me to go back and give back. Um, and and funny enough, that day, a friend of mine sent me an email saying, hey, the Career Development Office at Berkeley just posted a job um, in their, their office. You should apply for it. Ha ha. Like, you know, we were joking around. Um, and the Career Development Office was like, you know, you'll be lucky if five or 10 people come. We've never done a summer program. During the regular year, we barely get people to come anyways. 45 plus people show up. We finished the panel, the hour-long panel. They stay for two hours for Q&A. They don't want to go home. And it's like 9 p.m. And I was like, you guys, we love you. We want to support you. But we are so freaking hungry. And I'm actually starting to get hangry. And it's never a good look when I'm hangry. Uh, because, you know, I yelled at the security guard last time, right? So, um, you know, So I joked with the assistant dean who's still now there, uh, Terry Galligan, who was my career counselor when I was in law school, um, about this, about wanting a job. And I said, I know you're looking for somebody who has five years plus of practice experience. I don't have that, but call me in a few years. But when he saw how successful the panel was and how I was like, hey, I want to gather feedback. I want to make this better. He was like, call me next week. And the rest was history. I interviewed. I got the offer. And the offer came right when that, and I wasn't going to take it, actually, because I was uh, starting to look into other firms. But when that partner came um, and talked to me, I was like, you know what? This is not okay. I don't want my life to depend on like one or two people in a firm. The reality of the current big offer model is that there's a few rainmakers and mostly service partners and service associates. And I just didn't want my life to be in that dichotomy anymore. I just couldn't go back to wanting to kill myself every day anymore.
0: Right. And so I right.
1: chose life. And I chose to to make a third less. I gave up offer for like $100,000 to go work at Berkeley Law. Um, I was making $58,000 a year there. I commuted an hour and a half each way, even though my current commute in the city was only like 30 minutes, right? There was a lot of things that I could have said, I can't do that. I can't make that little money. I can't commute. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And I was like, But if I don't, I will die.
0: You'll be throwing up every day. And yeah, yeah. So that seems to really figure it Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, let's discuss if perhaps sometimes therapy might be able to help people who were unhappy in their work, who are attorneys, find positions that might be a better fit for them, because I would imagine that really figures in. And we'll be right back. Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% 39% faster on average than those using traditional payment methods. With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can accept client payments online, via email, or in person, no equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com podcast to sign up and get your first three months free. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis-Warren, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'm speaking with Samoran Salim. She does career coaching. She's an attorney, and we are talking about how to find work that you absolutely love. So, Samoran, before the break, we were speaking about your experiences and having a job that you really didn't like, but you thought you should have, and then making the decision to leave that job for you know significantly less money and convenience in terms of where you lived. If you're in a job you really don't like and want to change the situation, I am curious how a therapist could maybe help you get to the point to be to really honest with yourself about what kind of job would work for you, what's working, what's not working, and how to approach change and looking at change in a healthy way. So how can a therapist figure in if you're unhappy?
1: That's a great question, Stephanie. So first, I think like there has to be an acknowledgement that something isn't right and the hardest part for us as lawyers is that we want to be right. <laughs> we're paid to be right, right? So, um, so and and we're so busy that it's really hard to find time for self-care. And we're so busy. If you're in a nonprofit, you're you're so used to just helping everybody else. If you're at a big firm, you're so used to helping your clients that you overlook yourself. So, I think there's some acknowledgement that like, look, regardless of whether you're in a good place or a tough place, therapy is very helpful to just process what's happened because there's so much happening that we don't have time to listen to our inner voice. Mm-hmm. And my therapist was really, really great. I still work with him to today, rain or shine. I just see him every week. And if I need more, I'll see him twice a week. And, um, you know, just going there and just letting him know like, hey, when I started having anxiety attacks and, and feeling pretty depressed, I didn't realize it was because of my job. I just thought that like, I'm messed up and I just need to figure it out. But going to my therapist, he was like, well, what what factors led you to here? Because you once were really happy, you once were really positive, so let's uncover that. And then what what he also can help, uh, he or she can help you do is figure out that it's not actually just the situation. Usually there's a compounding trauma that you've had dealt with since childhood that's leading up to this place that's becoming a trigger for you. And so uncovering that. And then also allowing you a space to actually say like, well, what do I really want? And and being able to shut out the noise, whether it's social media, your parents, what society says, and to say, what what actually sparks my joy, right? And that's what I really focus on in my company, Career Unicorns, spark your joy. It's really about, let's not focus on what you, you don't want, like, you know, or what you can't do, but let's focus on what's that little spark in you that gives you joy, that makes you feel light. And we can start with that we won't have the answer right away because we're talking about years and years of conditioning, 25, 30, 40 years, wherever you are in your age. And so it's going to take some time. That's the second piece is patience. Your therapist can help you walk through that process um, instead of just having all these thoughts just ruminating in your head.
0: Right. And do you have advice on interviewing for a different job when you're really unhappy in your current job? Because, you know, you've got to turn it on and, um, You know, obviously, you don't want to disclose too much about why you're unhappy normally, and you want to sell that person, but it's hard if you're having a hard time, I think, sometimes.
1: Absolutely. That's a great question. What I tell people is that when you interview for a job, what it really comes down to is connection. And so, if you're going with anxiety and drama, whatever's in your head, then you will never be able to connect with the person because you're too self absorbed. If you can go in with this is the possibility, I'm here to listen to what they're looking for or the need, and also to think creatively about my skill set that would be of a good use for this job. And for attorney, it's critical thinking, it's reading, it's writing, it's communicating, it's being able to concisely frame an issue and find answers, right? That's going to be valuable in any job. So if you can connect with the person and get out of your own head and not focus on like, I need to project X, Y, and Z, but actually listen to what the person's biggest challenges are. I just went to a really big um, uh, conference, the CMCP conference, where uh, clients were saying, The people I hire are always the people who ask me, What keeps you up at night? And here's how I can solve that. Mm-hmm. If you go in with that, you're almost always going to get any
0: job. Mm yeah, that's really good advice. So if you met someone and they're an attorney and they just are like, I just hate my job and I just I don't know, I have this anxiety, I can't sleep. What would your first piece of advice be for them if they came to you? Breathe. Hmm.
1: Yeah, so usually I just take them through a meditation where um if you want to do this while we're on the call, Stephanie, just put your hand your right hand on your heart, close your eyes. Stand up or sit down with your feet on the floor and take ten deep breaths.
0: Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great advice. When you're in a space where your
1: mind is so crazy ruminating over like these crazy thoughts, your your first thing should not be let me fix this. Your first thing should be, let me just get myself back to breathing. And then when you have space and that stillness, that's when that's when you'll be in a space where you can actually think more critically about what's going on instead of just having the thoughts overtaking your entire body.
0: And do you have advice, once you're in a place where you can really do an honest assessment about what's making you feel bad, and if it's your job, do you have advice on once you figure out this is what I like about my job, I'd like to do more of it in another job, finding that job? Because it might be, who knows, you might have to create your own job. And you know that, you see more and more of that. Absolutely. So I think, like, you know, creating your own job,
1: being your own entrepreneur like myself, it's not for everyone. It it is very tough, right? Because then everything is on you. You have to be open to doing the finances, you have to be opening to marketing and sales, which you might hate. I hate marketing and sales um, on top of being really great at your job. So I think you have to have an honest assessment about that. You know, I think the thing is, like, no job is the same. Even if I were a lawyer at my firm, my job as a lawyer at another firm would look very different because the way organizations are structured are just very different. You can kind of loosely know what you need to do or how much time you are going to spend on things, but how, how it's actually structured and how it gets implemented is different. So I would say don't assume that just because you're a lawyer at a firm or a nonprofit or a government agency that it's all the same everywhere. It's not. And I know this because I coach thousands of law students, lawyers, and executives and VPs in their careers, right? And no job has ever looked the same. No person has ever done the same thing. Um, So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is, if you're clear about what you want to do, you can almost always find a position in any organization doing that thing. And to not limit yourself and say, oh, I can only work for nonprofits or, oh, I can only work for government or, oh, I can only work in-house. Because those are just all social constructs that keeps you from being creative and finding what's going to work for you, Mm, right? mm. So just taking a step back and saying, like, if you really love helping people to get money and resources and tools to do greater work, you can do that at salesforce.org or google.org or, you know, other .orgs within these big companies and get paid a lot of money for it and live a really good life and have a much more massive impact than if you worked on direct services per se, right? Depending on what kind of impact you want to have. So I would say, look at those two things. When you go to your own funeral and look at your obituary, what impact do you want to have on the world? That is often gonna be a greater guide than saying, I want to be a lawyer, I want to be a doctor, I want to be something. Uh, Because those words are just meaningless in and of itself. And then the second piece is, in that impact, how would you like to do that work? Is it through speaking and motivating people? Is it through writing and being able to touch people in their homes? Or is it through, you know, um, litigating the best case that goes to the Supreme Court? It, it looks very different for everybody. Right. And so being creative and being honest about what you want instead of saying, I should want that. Or a common thing I hear is, well, I worked so hard for my degree. I studied for the bar exam. I can't just give it all up. And I like, so what are you going to do? Live the next 50 years doing something you hate? That's the alternative
0: we're talking about here. Right. It, Yeah. You know, it's like when someone's been dating someone for a long time and it's not working. They're like, well, I've put 10 <laughs> years in this relationship. And if I give it up, you know, then I'm going to be 30 and single. Well, it's, now it sounds crazy. But yeah, it's kind of the same thing, though, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, at, yeah, totally. It is the same thing. The same thing. <laughs> Either, yeah, fish or cut bait, as they say. And so that's everything we have time for today. I want to thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story with us and your advice.
1: You're so welcome, Stephanie. Thank you so much for choosing me and hearing me and affirming me. I think in this world where I'm a woman, first-generation professional, and poor, growing up that way, it's hard for me to see myself and for the for me to even believe that anybody would, would find my advice helpful. So if my story can help somebody who's struggling or who's going through these same things be able to say, you know what, um, I might have been you know, a victim of growing up poor. I might have been a victim of, of sexual assault. I might have gone through depression, but that is not going to define who I am. Then I'm thankful for that. I'm grateful for the
0: opportunity to have that. Well, great. And listeners, thank you for joining us. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journals Asked and Answered.